0: Oh, a cup of tea, please, dear, and ten olivier. We don't do tea, only coffee. Expresso or cappuccino.
1: Oh, all right, I'll have a white woman, no froth. No froth? I don't like froth.
0: That's half the attraction, you must have froth.
1: I don't want any froth, I want a cup of coffee. I don't want to wash my clothes in it.
0: I've never heard of anybody who didn't want froth.
1: Well, you have now, one white coffee, no froth.
0: Oh, somebody got out of bed the
1: wrong side this morning, didn't they? And a cappuccino, no froth. No froth? That's right. No froth. And not that marvellous, eh? 800 quid's worth of frothing machinery here, and you don't want that. Although it's what you come in here for if you don't want any froth. You can get an ordinary cup of coffee anyway.
0: An expensive, tasteless and dreary romp in which, unbolstered by the showmanship of Mike Todd or anyone like him, about half a hundred famous faces appear for a few minutes, smirking, and then, with charadish embarrassment, vanish. Isabel Quigley, the spectator. Tony Hancock, the funniest of the television comedians, has made the dangerous transition to the larger screen rather more happily than most, the BFI Monthly Film Bulletin. Norman Wisdom can move over, the British have found a low comedian who is every bit as low as he is and even less comical, Bosley Crowther, The New York Times. This week we discuss 1961's The Rebel.
1: Hello and welcome to Britcom Goes to the Movies. This is a podcast where we watch a British film that had its origins in the TV comedy landscape of its day. And joining me is a man who can't wait to get into his pointed Italian two-tones off down the high street. Makes him feel like a king. Clean dicky dirt, new peck and pair of luminous almond rocks, new whistle, nice crease in his strides barnet well greased up and flashing his hamsters at all the bona pelodes. it's rob heath and he's 23rd in the handshake queue for visiting dignitaries it's guy walker <laughs>
0: brilliant yeah you've um described me quite accurately though and i'm stressing down the the peckham high street, street. <laughs> well yeah latterly the peckham high street these days the
1: uh the portobello promenade so yeah we are talking the rebel uh tony hancock so we thought as it's the last episode of the series, why not do the first spin spin-off, really? Hancock's Half Hour is generally considered to be like the first modern sitcom, and Tony Hancock making a jump from the small screen to the big screen, so let's give it a go. The first a lot of things, I think,
0: as we're going to find out from, yeah. these, uh, from this episode, he, um such a was the, this is no surprise to a lot of particularly older listeners. Such a trailblazer in the world of British comedy.
1: It's hard to like imagine. I think until I was I was rereading a a, a book, that, a biography, Hancock that I got years ago, and then I read it during lockdown. And I think it's hard to imagine how massive he was. Like I think obviously he's he's still a big figure, and that, that image of him with the hat and the big black coat is so synonymous. But really, I don't think we have a I have a handle over how influential he was really
0: yeah exactly and you know and there's a lot of things that i've realized from from researching this week so
1: mm. shall i go into a bit of a few details on the film so it was released on the 2nd of march 1961 it was the sixth most popular film in the uk box office in 1961 i can't find any other figures than in that the entire before. year yeah sixth wow. most popular Film, uh, yeah, it's got an eighty-one percent audience score on Rotten Tomatoes, six point eight on IMDb. It had a budget of one hundred seventy-five thousand pounds, so that was nineteen sixty-one. So I worked that out to be just over five million pounds in today's money. Yeah, so that's kind of you know
0: that's upper echelons of what Britcoms are sort of spending these days, isn't it? Yeah, yeah and you can you can see it. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll get into it, but you can see a lot of it in the. um it doesn't, look,
1: yeah. It doesn't look cheap. It it looks it looks mm. like and it and it's in color as well, which not many of the films of that era, certainly Britcoms, were in color.
0: It looks like a Hollywood film. It which, does. You know, for a British comedy, is
1: but they never do, do they? No, <laughs> no <laughs> Even when they've Got rare. Hollywood stars in them. <laughs> Even lesbian vampire killers are <laughs> nuns on the run. <laughs> ah, um, please, honestly, its American title was. Call me genius, which I don't think helped the film. Um, no, because there was a program, a TV program, with the same name. Is that right? Yeah, that's yeah. I think that's right. And I think also audiences not knowing who Tony Hancock was didn't help. Kind of, that's a great introduction. There's this guy calling himself a genius, which I guess if you've known the TV show, coming to it, and that's something I'll get into when talk about it later on. Is the yeah, is that? Well, plus uh,
0: Americans. Uh, sorry, I, I don't want to generalise here about what might be <laughs> to our American listeners, but only just getting their heads round ideas of self-deprecation, irony, and and uh, um, sarcasm now, aren't they? <laughs> so, well, yeah, that's so it. Yeah, <laughs> in the sixties, would have been a big shot.
1: Yeah, I can't imagine how that would go over to an American audience. But you know, sorry, American listeners, of which I know there
0: are some. Yeah, uh, we know. Uh, we know you know what side your bread's buttered,
1: comedian. Exactly. You wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you didn't. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so yeah, I thought I'd go into a bit on the rise of Tony Hancock for this episode because there's a there's quite a lot to to go through. So Tony Hancock's comedy career began in World War Two. He joined the RAF and became part of the Ralph Reader Gang Show uh, with a touring production of a show called Wings, which I'm not very familiar with and couldn't find a lot on it, but. After the war, Hancock returned to the stage and worked as a resident at the Windmill Theatre, which was famous for its nude ladies. Um, Yeah, to get round the obscenity laws, the women who'd be on stage would be there posing as living statues. So the ruling was, if you move, it's rude. So between the tableaus, you'd have comedians such as Peter Sellers, Spike Milligan, Tommy Cooper, and Bruce Forsyth, who'd appear on stage between the acts. So he also took part in radio shows of the day, such as Workers' Playtime and Variety Bandbox. Box. But his big break came when he joined the cast of Educating Archie, where he played a tutor to the ventriloquist doll Archie Andrews. A young Julie Andrews played Archie's girlfriend, and other tutors included Harry Seacombe, Benny Hill, and Dick Emery. Have you heard any of that? I might have heard like on a Tony Hancock documentary, like little bits, but it, it yeah.
0: Go I'm on. I'm fascinated to know how a something about ventriloquism works on the radio.
1: <laughs> Me too. I was thinking exactly the same. I think I think you just hear the what going. Oh yes, hello. <laughs> From what <Not> I, <laughs> Like, I've seen pictures of like the recordings and the guy's there with the doll, like.
0: You don't need the doll. Isn't there a far show Arthur Atkinson sketch with a ventriloquist? I'm sure there.
1: I'm sure yeah, there is. Yeah, there must be. There must be one. There, we're gonna have to look that one up now. It rings mm. a bell. Yeah, I always like the one where he swore at the audience and they, they, all, <laughs> they all left. Hancock's appearance on the show brought him into the national consciousness and his catchphrase, flipping kids, became part of the zeitgeist. Off the back of this hit, Hancock got his own radio show. Hancock's half hour began in 1954. The show broke with the variety tradition, which was dominant in British radio comedy at the time. So instead of sketches, guest stars and musical segments, the comedy came from characters and situations developed over a 30-minute storyline, along with A Life of Bliss starring George Cole and Life with the Lions, the sitcom was born. The radio series ran from 1954 to 1959 and featured Sid James, Bill Kerr, Kenneth Williams and Hattie Jakes. It was written by Ray Galton and Alan Simpson. See, that's something I never realised was that the radio series ran while the TV show was going on as well, which he's doing TV at one point and then he's going off to do radio and then going back again.
0: Yeah, they overlapped for about two or three years as well, didn't they? It's, um,
1: yeah, a, a very
0: kind of strange way of doing things, but, it, yeah, it seemed to work. I, I personally, although like some of the later some of the funnier and perhaps, if you like more for want of a better word, iconic episodes of the radio show come later in the run, don't they? Like, like yeah. uh, the one we're going to talk about later. Um, but I, I personally feel like the radio show as a whole suffered from no Kenneth Williams. As soon as Kenneth Williams isn't in the cast, the 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 hilarity drops massively for me personally. Mm-hmm.
1: I think it might play with what I'm going to talk about in a moment, which is how it shifted from narrative to like more of an observation, Mm -hmm. I think. So maybe that that was something. And I do find it strange that other than a couple of episodes of the TV show, Kenneth Williams isn't really in it. Maybe he was too big, I don't know, because obviously he was a big star in his own right, wasn't he? Absolutely. Yeah, so like I said, the show's, the show's humour gradually shifted to observation with less emphasis on narrative. It was also influenced by the developments going on in the British theatre with its use of sighs and silent pauses, which was influenced by playwrights such as John Osborne and Harold Pinter. The episode had measured pacing, which was quite unusual for this era of fast-talking radio comedians such as Ted Ray, who used machine-gun-style delivery to fill every second of airtime. The show was set at 23 railway cuttings East Cheam. The house would change each week due to the situation. This was before the days of continuity and the domestic situation would also vary. But Hancock playing a version of himself would usually be a hopeless, down on his luck actor or comedian. Though every now and again he would find success. Sid James was usually on the fiddle in some way and setting Hancock up for a fall. The television version began in 1956 with the same writers. It was produced for the BBC by Duncan Wood. Only Sid James transferred from the radio series, though Kenneth Williams and Hattie Jakes would make a few guest appearances. The TV show plays more like a double act, with Hancock and James living together, and unlike in the radio series, there seemed to be more of a genuine friendship between the two. The comedy came from their interactions, with James's character being the realist and puncturing Hancock's pretensions. Do you think that when they
0: moved to tv and they got rid of bill kerr that they just merged bill kerr's and sid james's characters together to make one one flatmate
1: it feels like it but sid james's character feels a lot cleverer than the bill kerr mm. character does i mean bill kerr's only purpose is just to say stupid things isn't it really certainly in the later radio yeah. shows and I think that I think I think earlier on, I think he was a bit smarter from mm-hmm. what I gather was a Bill Kerr character, whereas I think they probably had to merge them a little bit together. Yeah, because Sid James is always the one who comes out on top as well in the in the TV show.
0: Yeah, definitely. I do, um, well, yeah, I'm thinking like because even I think that they probably well they would have figured it out because they're already on TV by this point, but in the uh, the poetry recital. Episodes, but that basically ends with both Bilker and Sid James stealing his thunder in the same way. Yeah, so it true. would have been quite noticeable to just say we don't need both of these characters.
1: Yeah, I, exactly.
0: Obviously, they already had said that because they were already on TV at <laughs> <by> that point. <laughs>
1: yeah, they'd already ditched them. Yeah, yeah. So it's a good point, Isai. And I think you're probably right there that they didn't need them, that they didn't need both of them. Um, Yeah, in real life, Hancock's highly-strung personality made the demands of live broadcasts a constant worry. So from the autumn of 1959, all the episodes were recorded before transmission. Up to this point, every British comedy show was performed live due to the limitations of the time. Hancock became worried that his work with James was turning them into a double act, and in 1959, just after the fifth series was recorded, Hancock revealed his partnership with James would end after the sixth series. He left it to others to tell James it was over. His last series for the BBC was broadcast between May and June 1961 and was called Hancock. He had now moved to Earl's Court, and the show is best remembered for classic episodes such as The Blood Donor, with the line, I don't mind giving a reasonable amount, but a pint? That's nearly an armful! Which is the the classic line from that show. The Blood Donor would be Hancock's greatest moment, but it was also the beginning of the end. Soon Hancock would split from Galton and Simpson and make the move to ITV. The fall of Tony Hancock will be picked up when we get to the Punch and Judy Man in a later episode. And what a fall. Yeah, it's really sad when you kind of think about this moment that is the the kind of pinnacle of him and is still remembered to this day with people quoting it. You all you have to do is mention the blood donor. And if you've got an interest in comedy, you know what it's about. And then, yeah, it ends in a really sad way in 1968, I think, in Australia, so... But at this point with the with the with the radio show having ended
0: and the TV show kind of coming to an end this was the perfect time to to bring out the film I guess
1: yeah I think so and it's interesting because he does the film and then we we have the the this series of Hancock which is really kind of fondly remembered by a lot of people to so say that it's him going off on his own and I think maybe one of my criticisms not not wanting to get in there too early is you're maybe missing some of the players from the the tv show the radio show i think it's interesting that we have a series of six episodes where it it, it didn't suffer yeah definitely um
0: obviously yeah we'll we'll get into more of that once we get into the film but Mm. i i wanted to go through some of the cast and crew comedy connections uh so you've covered a lot of tony hancock already but after appearances on the aforementioned Educating Archie, the radio show about the ventriloquist dummy and a kids' variety show called Kaleidoscope. He teamed up with Ray Galton and Alan Simpson for what would become the legendary Hancock's Half Hour. Obviously, both on radio and TV, overlapping for some time, the idea of a comedian playing a version of himself goes back at least as far as the mid-50s. Yeah. I mean, that's something that almost seems like a tired trope now, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I think everyone seems to be seems to be doing it in some way, don't they? <laughs> Yeah, from Hancock's Half
0: Hour to The Reluctant Landlord or Josh Widdicombe's sitcom. I've not seen either of those, so I'm not saying they're bad.
1: No, I've but, not know, seen this, either. This is, the,
0: this is the, the natural kind of... Progression, I guess. Yeah, exactly. That series obviously helped launch the career of a loss of the carry-on cast, particularly Sid James. In 1956, Hancock had a sketch show for ITV called The Tony Hancock Show, and that was a contractual obligation forged by his manager, that, I mean, that, that kind of seems bizarre, isn't it? In the, in the, in the middle of the, the height of the radio show fame, oh, yeah, I've uh, struck a deal with ITV that I haven't told you about and you've got to go and write a load of
1: sketches for it. Uh, I can't imagine Tony Hancock in a sketch show. It feels no. the complete opposite of what he's about. Yes, definitely. But, he, you know, he's so kind of
0: welded to that character. mm. In 1957, he's got a credit for a televised pantomime. So like he was, was, like, some of his best reviews on the stage came from came from pantomime. So he did a, a televised pantomime called Pantomania, which was a TV version of the pantomime. Why do you think I've brought this up? Which pantomime do you think he was in? Oh. it's uh, connected it this,
1: to this to this podcast. Is it something we've done already? Is it linked to something we've done already? Kind of. Oh God, I can't even think. Babes in the Woods. Oh yes, (laughs) my favourite sitcom. (laughs) Not really. I just want to make that clear. (laughs) Uh, As you've already mentioned,
0: Hancock's half hour mutated into Hancock in the early sixties, and then confusingly, a show called Hancock's with an apostrophe to reference a fictional nightclub of which he was the owner and the MC. Mm -hmm. Did you see any
1: of that? I've I've seen it on like a documentary where they showed kind of clips. From from that show, but yeah, I, not not an episode or anything.
0: Uh, film wise, we've got Orders or Orders in 1954, and about about an American film company using a British army barracks to film. Which it, that sounds like fun. Peter Sellers mm. answered James in that.
1: Yes, uh, good cast.
0: After the film, we're going to talk about the Rebel. There was the Punch and Judy Man, which is on our list, and that will kind of form part two of this episode, I guess, once we get to it. Mm. Uh, those Magnificent Men in Their Flying Machines, he was in that, and The Wrong Box.
1: I've seen The Wrong Box, and I think it's probably one we should do because it's got a lot of people. It's got Peter Cook and Delimar, Tony Hancock, Nanette Newman's in it because it's directed by her husband, Brian Forbes, mm-hmm. Michael Caine's in it, Peter Sellers is in it, kind of anyone who was i think harry h carbert from stepson's in it as well
0: yeah it's come up in previous episodes when when we've done comedy connections at least one other time uh yeah we should definitely uh, include it i always think of tony hancock and peter cook and dudley moore being of completely different eras the fact that yeah. those two overlap
1: in something is going to be good exactly yeah they feel like kind of like you say opposite not opposite ends, but one feels so mind ingrained in the fifties and they seem very kind of that like cutting edge nineteen sixties though. Again, they?
0: I think both kind of trailblazers and then one kind of taking it as far as he could and then those guys then take over that mantle. Definitely. As progressing the form. Anyway, mm. that's a that's a big sidetrack. Moving on to George Sanders, a proper film star. I love George Sanders, so this was uh, this was a fun one to do. Uh most famous Perhaps as Shere Khan from the Jungle Book and Gordon Zellaby in Village of the Damned, two of my favourite films of the nineteen sixties. Have you seen
1: Village of the Damned? I think I have seen Village of the Damned a long time ago. It's great, lovely, isn't it?
0: Lovely. Lovely, brilliant, quaint British horror. And yeah. obviously the uh, inspiration for The Simpsons uh sake of it.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I need to rewatch it again. I'm thinking. I hope that's
0: not Shepherd's Pie in my knickers. <laughs> That's not a line from Village of the Damned, that's from The Simpsons. (laughs) I don't think you'll be going to London, that's from Village of the Damned. Anyway, (laughs) Uh, he was in two Best Picture winning films, Rebecca in 1940 and All About Eve in 1950, for which he won the Best Supporting Actor Oscar. Oh, wow. British comedy-wise, he's in Find the Lady in 1936, about a swindler pretending to be a faith healer, which sounds... That sounds really sophisticated for its time and yeah. something I'd like to try and find.
1: Mm.
0: Uh, the Man Who Could Work Miracles, Dishonor Bright and Love Is News, all in the same year. Uh, also in the 30s, he did The Lady Escapes and So This Is London. He also played Simon Templar, the saint, long before Roger Moore did in a handful of films. I'd like to compare and contrast.
1: Yeah, I am going to say, I didn't know there was a, a, a version before Roger Moore, so... Two of my favourite English actors there.
0: Oh, nice. Playing the same character. Uh, A late 40s version of Lady Windermere's Fan, in which he played Lord Darlington. In the 50s, uh, he was in Call Me Madam and That Certain Feeling, Rockabye Baby. After The Rebel, he did Operation Snatch with Terry Thomas. These are mainly comedy um, credits I'm talking about here because obviously his list is massive. Mm. Uh, Operation Snatch with Terry Thomas. Uh, the Cracksman and A Shot in the Dark, in which he plays Benjamin Ballon. Yeah, big fan of Shot in
1: the Dark. Yeah,
0: that's
1: yeah. Uh, one of the one of the good Pink Panther ones, or pro- probably the best, I guess. It's the I best. One. It's the second one. Yeah, second yeah. one and the best one. Uh,
0: this one definitely counts as comedy. Three episodes of Batman as Mister Freeze beautiful i didn't know that (laughs) camping it up in that role long before arnie did i did i did i'd forgotten but it was since reminded yes of course he played that role i mean it's it's brilliant dig out those episodes i need to look that up rather sadly he committed suicide in 1972 four years after tony hancock did um he had a tragic last few years of his life in which his third wife, mother, and brother all died in the space of a year, and he lost a large proportion of his wealth in failed investments. He was diagnosed with dementia, having already had a minor stroke. So he was a very tragic figure in the, in the 60s and early 70s. Mm.
1: Um,
0: moving on to Paul Massey uh who is third build in this film a canadian who found fame in britain was in the 1959 hammer horror the two faces of dr jekyll in the lead role yeah the interesting thing about his version of dr jekyll is that he plays he does all the makeup for the dr jekyll character in which he he ages himself Mm. and then for mr hyde he plays him as a younger more attractive character in, in, ah. where he looks much more like himself. Yeah. So it's an interesting kind of reversal of, of that idea. He's in Raising the Wind with Leslie Phillips and Kenneth Williams, a hilariously bad-sounding TV comedy movie called He's Fired, She's Hired from the early 80s. Beautiful. <laughs> uh, Margit Saad, who plays Margot, was a German-Lebanese actress, uh, lots of German and French post-war noirs, uh, but her first English language film was the 1960 British neo-noir, The Criminal. After The Rebel, we will definitely see her again in the Morecambe and Wise movie, The Magnificent Two, which is on our list, Uh, after which she returned to German language films. So I don't know what that tells us about what The Magnificent (laughs) Two is going to be
1: like.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Fuck this, I'm back off to Germany.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Maybe she peaked. Maybe she was like, can't get any better than this. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah you sound skeptical rob <laughs> <laughs> the director
0: robert day has 93 directing credits uh starting with the crime comedy the green man with alistair Sim, george cole and terry thomas he directed bobby kins which has come up a couple of times already um as has two-way stretch which he also directed uh mm. that's definitely on our list yeah uh, four tarzan films and a tarzan tv show oh uh, the George Sanders starring aforementioned Operation Snatch as well. That was directed by Robert Day, uh, which is, would have been why they, they could get George Sanders in for this film, I guess, at the height of his fame. Mm. Uh, he directed six episodes of The Avengers and then a flurry of American TV institutions guy. Barnaby Jones, Perry Mason, Logan's Run, Matlock, Kojak. Uh, what the hell? yeah. Those last three, he did one episode of each of those, but um, a few, yeah, a few more of uh, Barnaby Jones and Perry Mason, uh, and he did three episodes of Dallas. God, this man is a proper director. Mm, um a lot of work, Galton and Simpson, legends of British comedy. Uh, most of their credits are as a partnership. So here we go. I'm going to rattle these off. Hancock's Half Hour, the Tony Hancock show, Peter Sellers' film, uh, The Wrong Arm of the Law. The Sid James show Citizen James, Harry H. Corbett comedy movie The Bargie. Uh, no? Uh, no. One that's come up before, not so much a program or a way of life. Uh, then came Steptoe and Son, the the other sitcom that they're most famous for. Uh, the Frankie Howard show, The Spy with the Cold Nose, which I think we mentioned in the Michael Rimmer episode with Denim Elliott. Mm-hmm. Um, they wrote Frankie Howard's bits for the TV series Silla. <laughs> Uh, Gotland Simpson did a sketch show called Golden Simpson comedy. Originally they did a section of the now infamous, the magnificent seven deadly sins, which has come up a couple of times, mm. uh, the steptoe and son movie and sequel and more to come of those two, uh, TV series Casanova 73 starring who would, who would they have starring as Casanova? What was, uh, what year? 73. So actually he's already too old. <laughs>
1: Roger Moore? <laughs> Leslie Phillips. Oh, okay. hell, <laughs> yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> we need, I need to watch that. <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh,
0: the Golden and Simpson Playhouse, and then came the very lucrative US version of Steptons and Son, Sanford and Son. Uh, a lot of German shows, weirdly, and my favourite of which is called Spaß Besighter Herbert Compt, which sounds great. Yeah, off of that. In the 1980s, they did sitcom Room at the Bottom with James Bolam and Keith Barron. Lots of Scandinavian comedies, including the 1990 film Camping, which contains John Saverdon and Don Warrington amongst its cast. In the 90s, there was Paul Merton in Galton and Simpsons. Get Well Soon, a period sitcom with Eddie Marzan. Oh, don't know that. Well, the only times I've known Eddie Marzan to be funny were been very much unintentional so <laughs> that yeah. doesn't sound uh, <laughs> that doesn't sound too promising but yeah. yeah a a long and lucrative career for those two and if we have hancock to thank for much of modern british comedy i would say golden and simpson just as much yeah 100 uh so those are our britcom comedy connections and credentials for the cast and crew of the rebel tell us more about the
1: rebel guy Tony Hancock had always dreamed about being in the movies for a long time and prior to the release of the rebel as you say Rob he'd only appeared in the low budget Odds or Orders. The film couldn't match the quality of its cast appearing alongside Hancock was Pete Sellers Sid James, Bill Fraser, Eric Sykes and a young Donald Pleasance also made an appearance. Hancock had lots of offers for movies in the late 1950s but none of them felt right or they fell through the film's subject matter has been foreshadowed in several episodes of the radio series, so the theme of Hancock as a thwarted artist or, or intellectual has served Galton and Simpson well. The seeds have been planted at the start of the second series when Hancock told Simpson of a conversation he'd had with the painter Alfred Munnings. Hancock had painted what he called the sunset over Sydney Harbour Bridge. Munnings thought it was a fried egg and herringbone, so you can see obvious inspiration there. The Rebel began shooting at L Street Studios in July 1960 and at this time there seemed to be no hint that Hancock was ready to ditch Galton and Simpson. They had been attached to the film since its inception. Hancock felt that the trouble with British film and scriptwriters is that they can only think of humour in two ways, broad comedy or something stuffed with actors like Whiskey Galore. While the film didn't fully avoid either, having Galton and Simpson on board, who knew his character so well, helped to avoid the pitfalls of other cinematic debuts from popular British comedians who come from radio and TV. For the first time, the writers found themselves discussing the subject matter with the star. He previously never contributed to the plot of the radio or TV show, so this brought some resentment from Galton and Simpson, who didn't like the, based on an original story by Tony Hancock, Ray Galton, Alan Simpson, part of the credits. The writers also found themselves on a learning curve, working on a film for the first time. In television, they'd only had to consider the comedy. Now they had to deal with more. So taking advice from the producer, W.A. Whitaker who told them to consider the jeopardy of putting a character into trouble to see how he gets out of it. Hancock had to fight director Robert Day to avoid scenes degenerating into obvious slapstick. British comedies of this type would often curse to a mawkish end, but not with Hancock involved. Any tendency for sentimentality was quashed and he was able to stamp his performance style onto the film. The paintings in the film were created by Alistair Grant, and Galton and Simpson insisted that the film was not supposed to be an easy shot at the art establishment, but a comment on Hancock trying to buy into the dream of being an artist. When the film was released, it gathered mostly disappointing reviews, but the Times called it a gratifying success. Hoping to crack America, the film's title was changed to Call Me Genius, but without prior knowledge to Hancock's character, the film was doomed to fail. The film did show that Hancock didn't need an audience to be funny, but the lack of close-ups on Hancock that captured a fleeting look which found laughs that even writers didn't know were there was a major issue with the film. The film was a major success at the British box office, delivering a good week's business in a single day. Hancock was nominated for a film BAFTA as Most Promising Newcomer, in 2002, Aphrodite and all his other works that had been originally destroyed for the film's completion were recreated for a public exhibition by the London Institute of Matter Physics. And that is how The Rebel was made.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's... I'm glad, kind of glad it was a success, given how much, you know, you telling me the budget there. You know, like, despite all the, you know, we can talk about it later, all the, all the location stuff, which, you know... Filming around um, the Arc de Triomphe and Monte Carlo must have, you know, must have set them back
1: a, a fair amount.
0: But yeah, I mean, I, I'd never seen. Had you seen this film? But you, a big Hancock fan, so I'm guessing you'd seen this film before, had you?
1: Yes, I watched it only a couple of years ago. To be fair, so I kind of, I got into Hancock through my dad so i remember i was always into like i got into like the goon show in like the my mid-teens through him because he had the cassettes and then one christmas he bought me like the hancock um it was like four episodes of the last series on cassette so it's like the blood donor and uh three others and so it was from that point that i kind of got playing my late teens so I'd watched some of the TV show, listened to some of the radio show, but I'd say it was maybe 2021 when I actually watched this film for the first time, so a bit late coming to it. And um, on first watch, I enjoyed it. It was nice to see. I mean, you know, it it looks good, you know, without giving anything away. I think it looks really nice for a film of this era. And, yeah, I I enjoyed it um, at the time. but So it's been interesting going back. What was your sort of history with Tony Hancock? well i do you know what i think the first time
0: i i would have seen clips for sure um and i'm my grandma probably would have had some like cassettes and stuff but i reckon the first time i would have seen an entire show or heard an entire show would have been that first year of university and we had Mm. a Uh, what was the module called, where we listened to radio comedies? We listened to Round the Horn and and stuff like that, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Yeah, I always remember that that as well. That would have been my first kind of proper introduction to Hancock. Um, And then, yeah, I would have dismissed it through most of my 20s as being kind of, you know, not irrelevant, but having not aged particularly well. But actually, with the revisits this week, I've listened to probably listen to about eight or nine of the radio episodes now and a couple of the tv episodes and i i think it holds up really well like Mm. the 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 writing particularly like galton and simpson were obviously a a pair of geniuses yes um and the 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 way it's delivered but i don't I don't know. I, I'm not. I was quite glad that Sid James wasn't in this film actually, because I'm not so. Okay. Sure. I'm not so sure of him as a. Uh, I'm not sure. Not so sure of his delivery. You know, mm. when, when, he, when you think about really silly stuff, like carry on, then it kind of works. <laughs> it has started hailing outside my window, so apologies for the residual noise on there. Uh, but yes, I mean, I, 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 as I mentioned earlier, I particularly like the episodes where. Kenneth Williams features heavily. Mm. Um, I was listening to one where Sir James becomes his tax advisor and they, they all end up in prison together nice. with Kenneth Williams, as judge. Oh, uh, cool. I, and that is, that's a brilliant episode. Uh, so yeah, I, I have been really enjoying it. It's, it's, it's something that I wasn't, you know, when we wrote the list of our episodes for the first series, it was one, I didn't have the same trepidation that something like man about the house did but i was a little bit worried is this going to be a slog Uh, yeah it's been really enjoyable and obviously the great thing about radio shows you can listen to it listen to it on the go and i have been Mm. chuckling on planes and trains since so yeah it's been been really nice
1: yeah, it's been it's been really good to to listen to them again because it had been a while since I'd listened to the shows and like you said, it, I think I got one of the DVDs when we were at uni. I remember they started bringing the shows out on DVD, and when I was writing my dissertation, which we've kind of mentioned before, which is about comedy writing, it was one of the things that I picked up. But it's just been nice just to listen. I mean, to listen to those radio shows and watch those TV shows, and like you said, the writing is so good, and I really like the performances. And I I I do quite like Sid James. I like the interaction between those two characters as well, and it 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 holds up really well. And there's there's like things like parody of the of Twelve Angry Men and things like that that they do a really good TV episode of. And I watched one called The Babysitters, which was really funny. Which is Hancock and Sid uh, have to go around and babysit some kid. They've like signed up to be babysitters, which is a brilliant episode. And like the idea of it's funnier in itself, but it's just them two in this kind of posh couple's house with all these like mod cons that are quite revolutionary for the late 50s so i mean
0: it's been said a million times before as well but it does bear repeating that so many comedy characters wouldn't really exist without that character of tony hancock to kind of kick it all off you know like the way he kind of the the way so many episodes begin with him trying to keep up a good facade in front of people he wants to impress and then just ends up with him insulting them. Yeah. The the, the poetry society being a perfect example of that, but that's so reminiscent of a Basil Fawlty mm. just not being able to keep the facade up for long enough because he thinks too much of himself. And yeah, or the, all, all the, the, the highfalutin ideas and the delusions of grandeur, you know, that's all, that's all Partridge and Brent, isn't it as well? Yeah. So and of course, it just so many comedy concepts, you know, the idea of playing a version of oneself and the idea of a sitcom.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, it
0: just doesn't it doesn't compute that this stuff all had to kind of start from somewhere. And yeah. um Gorton and Simpson deserve all the praise that they've had over over the last however many years, 75 years.
1: Yeah, I'd agree. I feel that like this show's almost like the blueprint for comedy going on from that point it feels like everything is sort of somehow indebted to Tony Hancock, whether people know it or not. I mean, but that that doesn't mean to say that you can't criticize it and
0: that you can't suggest that things and people have improved upon it as, you know, some kind of diehard Hancock fans might say, oh no, well, you know, nothing will ever be as good as this. I I think, I think that would be, that would be wrong to say, but you know, to just for, yeah, for, for what it set out is, is unbelievable really.
1: No, I wouldn't, yeah, I certainly wouldn't agree with that. I think it's a great blueprint and it is so important, but there's so many great, and you can't say that, that things like Brent or Basil Fawlty or Partridge are, you know, are like ripping Hancock off. Like you might watch some other stuff that we may have seen where you go, oh, well, you can kind of see where that's coming from. Definitely done in its own way. I think it, it was just provided that blueprint that everything feels like, it just feels like that is what a sitcom is. Yeah, I guess. Exactly.
0: Mm.
1: I think it's time we got into the rebel yeah let's do it after this I'm Anthony I know I've been waiting to meet you for so long I've heard so much about you about your new approach to art the infantile school isn't it oh yes yes Paul has shown me some of your work I think you're brilliant oh you're too kind please sit down join us thank you Josie's an existentialist Oh, yes, one of old jean Paul Sartre's, my
0: bae. (laughs) instinct? She's very keen on it. I'm afraid it's beyond me. It's a philosophy I can't follow. It's quite simple. We believe that life is immediate. The future does not exist. Why kill time when you can kill yourself?
1: Yes, it's a point of view. I suppose so. All my friends are existentialists. Yeah, well, it's company for, isn't it? You'd like them. They appreciate a great talent like yours. We start with a pop art style opening credit sequence, and I put quite an uninspiring score. I don't know how you feel about that. I can't, I can't really remember the music very much, but the one thing that, the two things that struck me straight away. One
0: is it starts with the circles, uh, yeah. like like a almost like a Bond gun barrel thing before the year before Bond was even a thing on the big screen, and then, um, but also. Nice to have a opening credit sequence that looks good after the terrible one of Nuns on the Run.
1: Yeah, that's quite interesting isn't it? to think that we had the Nuns on the Run 30 years before. Yeah, exactly. And this looks so much better than that did. And we didn't have to listen to The Race either by Yellow. So
0: <laughs> Yeah, although, yeah, if you're saying this music was, yeah. was pretty naff as well, was it? I, I, yeah, I've yeah. Already, already forgotten it, but um, which obviously doesn't save... You know, doesn't suggest that it was very good. Mm. But, yeah, I, uh, I liked that opening sequence for the look anyway.
1: Yeah, me too. So we're now in glorious Technicolor as the lad himself, Tony Hancock, appears. We had seen him in color, I think. <laughs> yeah,
0: no, it is. His eyes are a lot lighter. I mean, I, not only in color, but we're also watching it in Blu-ray restoration as well, aren't we?
1: Yeah. So... so that you
0: know, looks very, really good. <laughs> yeah, very
1: strange. Yeah, exactly. He doesn't seem made for color, doesn't Tony Hancock? Maybe it's because we're so used to seeing him black and white that. Well, not, and not only that.
0: Yeah, not only that. Like the episodes I've been watching on YouTube are really bad quality rips, as well. <laughs> so it's like really black, black and white plus a dodgy transfer from,
1: you know, old film reels to VHS to sticking on YouTube. Hancock is dressed like a city gent in a bowler hat, three piece suit with a briefcase and umbrella. This is the style of the city slicker look of the early 1960s. Hancock is at a railway station where countless other men are dressed exactly the same in the identical city boy attire. He's stood alone on his platform while they are all congregated across from him. There, with a big advert on the platform behind him saying, There's no
0: substitute for the Times, which I Can well imagine might have been the case pre Murdoch, but.
1: (laughs) Certainly not anymore. Hancock stood alone on his platform while the rest are congregated across from him. He checks his pocket watch as two trains come into the station at exactly the same time. This is all a ruse, so he uses one train to get onto the other train to beat all the commuters to a seat. Once sat down, everyone pulls out a copy of the Times. (laughs) (laughs) No substitute? Yeah, exactly. And uh, we now hear Hancock's inner thoughts telling us it's journey 6,833 and runs down a list of uh, stops before morning that he sees the same faces every day. He then runs through his head who he thinks his fellow passengers are, just grey men who lack ambition.
0: This has become so. This has become such a trope of particularly of rom-coms. You know, like couples on a date. Oh, what what do you think their story is? And it, it's it's so tired now. It's it's hard to think that that was once an original idea, <laughs> isn't yeah. it? And, and quite a you know done to quite good effect there.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's usually in a restaurant, isn't it? A couple in a restaurant. Mm. Going, oh, what do you think they're doing? Oh, yeah, he's a serial killer. Oh. And
0: it's so, you know, what great shorthand is for what a great couple of these two would be, that they're uh, they're having a laugh about other people in a restaurant just trying to mind their own fucking business <laughs> and have a good time. <laughs> Leave them alone, you kooky shit.
1: <laughs> I feel like you've been burnt by these people before and that you overheard them. <laughs> or by rom-com writers, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Then he gets onto himself, who's just the same as they are. He wonders what the point of it all is. He's been doing the same job for the last 15 years. Where are we going? He shouts. Waterloo, says some bloke next to him. In his office, we have a row of bowler hats, umbrellas and briefcases all hung along a rail. This is a really good start for the um, production
0: design that's going to be one of the best things of this film all the way through. That office looks great but the yes. one thing i will say about it is it, it's a year after the apartment and the apartment has that famous uh office that goes on for miles mm. shot in which do you know how they achieved that no gone it was people fully grown adults then it was mm. children in suits on small desks then it was uh toys like uh, dolls and stuff yeah. and then it was paintings no I did wow amazing. I mean, obviously this doesn't go on for that long and and this is just all fully grown uh, adults I think. But it yeah. it yeah it looks that just looks really cool.
1: Yeah, it does look really cool. It's got a really nice mint green like their car as as this office which is really nice but yeah uh, yeah it's yeah it's great. And definitely you can see that influence of the apartment I think on this with mm. the kind of look of it. It's really good. Um, yeah, we got 12 men sat at their desks in, in one long row, and they all make the same movements as they crunch the numbers, very kind of mechanical, really like that. And then enter British comedy great and Tony Hancock regular, John LeMessieu, and he wishes the men a good morning. He's the office manager. And annoyed, he sees one of the umbrellas is out of place. It's the wrong way around. Obviously, it's Hancock's. He fixes it and then walks off annoyed. So we see the clock move from half nine to 11.25, and Hancock has ditched his work, and he's drawing a kind of caricature of one of his colleagues. John LeMessieu approaches behind him. Don't you think the nose is a bit too large? He says over his shoulder. And then Hancock tells him, you know, it's just a certain question of how one sees it. Was hancock
0: having his affair with john le Miserier's wife at this point
1: i think it was later on i later think it was okay. yeah it wasn't quite i think it was the mid-60s when that affair happened because
0: i i found out about that when i was doing a bit of my research because obviously it's por- portrayed isn't it in uh by uh is it ken stott and maxine peak play those characters yeah. in, in a bbc4 drama which i'd quite like to find and but yeah, now I wondered at, at what point in their relationship are, they t- are these two playing opposite each other? Cause
1: no, they were still good. I think they were still good friends even after the affair. It was one of those okay. things about John um wife says about how even, you know, after he'd kind of been betrayed, he still kind of looked out for Hancock. And I think it was in the depths of Hancock's alcoholism which th- this sort of happened. I think she thought that she could maybe fix him or help him and yeah it's just yeah just again like we said it's quite sad you know the, the,
0: the other thing I, I, I kind of noticed about this scene is that hancock looks looks younger in color and color and blu-ray um than he does in when he is younger in older black and white footage but again like mm-hmm. we said the same thing about um man about the house didn't we as well it's certainly benefiting from a full
1: expensive production he then realizes what he's done and attempts to rub it out so the office manager invites him into his office and tells him to bring his books with him in the office he starts inspecting hancock's accounts where he finds receipts with hancock's doodles on them so there's like a beautiful one where there's a receipt with an illuminated s which is all sort of Mm multicolored. yeah and hancock's like well you know it adds to the charm of the whole thing which uh, (laughs) i quite like Mm -hmm. and Yeah, Le Vissurier reminds Hancock that this is a business house and not a Benedictine monastery. And he asks him how long this rubbish took him. Well, you know, two or three hours. And it turns out that the time and motion study allows for preparation of a statement of accounts three minutes, 45.5 seconds time emotion motion studies
0: we'd only heard about that recently and now it's featured twice in two films
1: yeah exactly <laughs> so and it's one that our guest tom selinsky had brought up didn't he about how this was a, a bit of a common trope of the of the era and the big yeah and it's um kind of
0: ahead of its time you know that, like you'd think this sort of thing would come more with with Thatcherism and the more kind of aggressive capitalism of, mm. of, of making sure people use every single minute of their time to be making money for their <laughs> bosses. And, and there's a good line that John de Missouri says that um, the only art I'm interested
1: in is the art of making money, which is, you know, that's sounds like a Thatcher quote, So we now have more crude drawings of Hancock's college, which, to be fair, aren't great. Hancock runs through them, critiquing them all. He turns the page over to find a huge spread of, yes, you guessed it, John (laughs) LeMassurier, which is a really funny picture of him. Yeah. Yeah, he tells him that it has got to stop. And then um, he goes and he goes, you know, aren't you comfortable here? And Hancock tells him, you know, I've got greatness in me. And he can't deal with the soul-crushing monotony of it anymore. He grabs John LeMazurier by the collar and shakes him while shouting, he's choking me, he's choking me. And then shoves him to the floor before realising what he's done and then helping John Lemassurier back up. He apologises and gets him one of his pills. Hancock needs to break away. He needs to find himself. John LeMazurier suggests he joins the firm's tennis club. You know, sweat all this silly nonsense out of your system. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what that's what he did back in the day for mental health. Yeah. <laughs> Play tennis for half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> and then he tells him to take the rest of the morning off and come back in in the afternoon. In 30 years' time, when he collects his silver cigarette box, he'll know he was right. <laughs> like that.
0: That's a good lie.
1: Yeah, 5.30 p.m., Hits and the men race to get their belongings. Hancock races home where he finds his landlady, played by Irene Handel, who's a big fixture of uh, British comedy films of this time, cleaning the front step. Now in his flat, he puts on his painting clothes, including a Ponzi beret, which uh, I enjoyed. In his bedroom, under lock and key, he has a very ugly looking sculpture, which he calls his Temptress. An Aphrodite, and he says, what carnal desires did you stir in the breasts of helpless men? <laughs> Aphrodite at the waterhole. That's, yeah, that's what the statue's called, which is yeah, yeah it's, it's brilliant. So he gets to work chipping some clay off the old hooter, as he calls it. He decides to risk opening a window and carries on. His landlady can hear him and comes inside to find out what the noise is all about. She tells him off for hammering again. He's not allowed to make structural changes to the property. He reckons this dot house hasn't been touched since 1850 and is waiting for a grant from the National Trust. Yeah,
0: that was it. That was my first... Laugh out loud bit. Yeah. For the grant for the National Trust.
1: I liked the, Yeah, me too. I enjoyed that line. She bursts into his flat and finds a sculpture. She's not impressed and wants it out of her house. It's right above her bed and it might come through the floor. She wants to know if he's had naked women up there. No, he hasn't. He can't afford them. <laughs> then he says something like, at 30 Bob a time. <laughs> That's
0: a very open attitude to have with your landlady.
1: Yeah <laughs> Exactly, it just shows that sort of relationship they have. Yeah, he's not made of money. And then she goes, Oh, you poor man. Fancy knocking around with women who look like that. Well let's,
0: yeah, he so he says, This is women as I see them and she says, You poor man and that was the second laugh out loud bit for me.
1: She's got great comedy timing, hasn't she? She's brilliant. She's in a, a few Peter Sellers ones as well, and she's she's great. She is. She then critiques the paintings that are on his wall. I love those paintings. How shit they are! <laughs> yeah, they're just brilliant. The one of the yeah. birds flying up. <laughs> I call that ducks in flight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Irene Handel tells Hancock that she wants him and the sculpture out of her house by the following night, or she'll call the police. So after talking to a picture of Vincent van Gogh about the persecution of great men such as them, the sculpture falls through the floor. And now we're in one of my favourite scenes in the coffee bar where Hancock requests a tea and we've got Liz Fraser, another Hancock and British comedy uh, star of the era. She was in Two Way Stretch with Peter Sellers as well. And she tells him, they don't do tea, only express our cappuccino. And he orders a white one without the froth. That's a uh, a
0: funny little exchange. I think that place is. I mean, it's it's a studio uh, shot, isn't it? But I think it's mm. meant to be. There's a bit like big proliferation of those kind of Italian coffee shops in the early late fifties, early sixties in Soho. Mm. One of them is still there. I think it's called Bar Italia or something like that, and I think it's meant it's meant to be one of those
1: kind of places. Right, because it, it, again, it looks so nice. It's got this like sort of nice tone of like red or like a burgundy. It looks really. Mm. Yeah. Really nice. Does that great yes. use
0: Robert Day's great use of color?
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, I think I'd read that he was a cinematographer as well prior yes. to going into film. So yeah, it, it kind of shows. Does that is that eye that yeah. he's got that technical? Yeah, looks great. Yeah. So the waitress Liz Fraser acts shocked. Half of the attraction is a froth, which. Uh, <laughs> Hancock doesn't want it. Just a white coffee with no froth. And then she tells the man behind the counter, whose name, to be fair, I can't remember, but he's another Hancock regular, and he's making the drinks. He doesn't want the froth. Eight hundred quid's worth of frothing machinery, and you don't want any. This is—I mean—we're we talking about the
0: the similarity to Basil Fawlty here, and it's like this is why he really reminds me of Fawlty and partridge in that he can't he can't have a conversation with anyone without getting into an argument with them like every conversation <laughs> turns into an argument
1: yeah hancock takes a sip and is pained we hear his thoughts again as he wonders what an artist like him has to go through to be accepted and this is where he spots a poster on the wall and one of them is for paris home of culture he plans on selling his statue and putting it in the louvre we next see a train rushing past with the statue in the back of it on a trailer. The train goes under the bridge and poor Aphrodite of the watering hole gets her head smashed off. (laughs) The statue is now being lifted on the boat to France where it goes through the boards and into the water. It took Hancock three years to make it and he's holding the man in charge of the luggage personably responsible. He wants his money back. No can do, mate, as the statue had left the shores of England, so it's not his problem which I like that bit. On the boat, Hancock throws away his old life, namely his bowler hat and umbrella. I hate you and every single thing you stand for. I won't be needing you again. Cut to him leaving the boat and it's raining. I think this is the,
0: like the first of, or have we already seen some some good location stuff of London already? I was going to say like the, the first of our expensive location shots. Yeah. him don- on the ferry with the, with the, with the, Do- the Cliffs of Dover in the background and that looks great.
1: Yeah, I don't feel like we have a lot of London, but when he gets to Paris, we've got some really nice shots of Paris, don't we? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. you say, the, those shots of Dover are really nice. Dressed in his new clothes, beret and an old beige jumper, he tries to hitchhike into Paris. He manages to get a lift in a new sports car, along with several other brand-new cars that have been towed along on a train, which I liked. That's a good joke. I like that he then goes into a cafe and plunks himself down he takes in the atmosphere and watches a couple kiss and sees a group of artists arguing about art and life and one of them is Oliver Reed I know I kind of did a bit of a double take when I saw him that's, that's Oliver Reed Is it,
0: this has got to be a pretty early role for him right
1: yeah yeah definitely because he Cause, he'd been in The Damned which was like a early hammer I think around this time and then there was this so yeah because this this is more of a kind of come up small
0: role rather than a um big star doing a uh doing a cameo isn't it
1: yeah because this this bit is the only real part that oliver reads in isn't it i think he's maybe in a group scene later on he loves a loves a scuffle in a film doesn't he yes he certainly does <laughs> and, and,
0: and in real life <laughs>
1: Yeah, they all leave apart from an Englishman called Paul. Hancock offers him a drink, so he sits and joins him. Hancock tells him about his troubles back home. He had to get away. He was being stifled. He couldn't get anywhere with his art. No one was interested. Your work was misunderstood, offers Paul. Paul is also here seeking inspiration. He wants to show the volcanic turbulence of light. And he goes as he goes on this speech, we can see Hancock's eyes glaze over i loved that hancock's so hancock's ordered van
0: ordinaire hasn't he yeah for his drink so is is paul massey's character meant to be english because he's not i mean he's doing his normal canadian accent isn't he so Mm. or or he i mean he's a uh but as i said he's a, a canadian who's kind of like come up in in britain so i think yeah yeah the, the it's ref- never reference that he is english is it i, I, I just yeah it, it's reference that he has come from london to paris i guess
1: yeah because he talks about going home doesn't he so mm. i think it's just sort of because he doesn't sound overly canadian but the, the accent is a bit mixed mm. i think isn't it so yeah i think you kind of meant to just take it that, that he is he doesn't just paint a chair as it's seen he wants to get inside the chair and be the chair that wooden feeling, responds Hancock, which I quite liked. Hancock is now skint after ordering a bottle of wine. It's fine, though. He'll just go and sell a painting tomorrow afternoon, paint it in the morning, and sold it in the afternoon before the paint is dry. Paul invites Hancock to share his studio with him. They try to sneak past a landlady who also wants her rent. We have two men fighting on the stairs. They're great friends, really. They just can't agree about art. And then they pass an attractive woman who looks Hancock up and down in an in an alluring way. She sometimes models for Paul. I mean, as if talk yeah. about wish fulfillment.
0: <laughs> as if anyone, <laughs> as if anyone who looks like that character, Evette, would look at Tony Hancock and go, "Ooh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah." As um... look at this guy who looks at least ten years older than he actually is.
1: Yeah. yeah, and he's not in the best physical condition, is he? Especially
0: when you contrast it with Paul Massey, who I have to say I've got a bit of a man crush on. He's, he's a, a, a very handsome man. Good looking dude, that yeah.
1: Yeah, that Paul Massey. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I don't know why she's looking at Hancock when Paul Massey's done. Yeah, exactly. Paul <laughs> Massey stood right there. In a leather jacket. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: With um designer stubble.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, what's not to like? And then there's Hancock in a fucking old jumper and a paunch. <laughs> oh well, you can tell the 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 story came from Tony Hancock, can't you? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah,
0: true.
1: Yeah. Well, 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 wait, wait till we get to near the end of the film for wish fulfillment. <laughs> mm, true. Now in the studio, Hancock is thrilled and and finds it electrifying. They split the studio between them and Hancock tries to critique Paul's painting of a nude woman. The essence of the painting is in the shadow around her foot, he says. That's where your picture is. There, mate. Which I like. like, (laughs) like. Paul wants Hancock's opinion on his other paintings. There's no objectivism. Your your colours are the wrong shape. Which yeah, I like that. And then he, he yeah, and he walks around the room, doesn't he? he goes yeah, yeah. That the room it, it feels indigo with an underlining feeling of octagonical of something. Oct- yeah, is it octagonical? Yeah. He's he's
0: yeah, just complete bullshitting, and everyone's buying it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's great. Uh, Paul is blown away by this and asks Hancock if this applies to everything. And Cockley, he replies, naturally. <laughs> Hancock goes to sleep thinking of a pink triangle with a fish skeleton and a watch <laughs> hanging on it. Because <laughs> he's like, yeah, you, you give me a give me a color. And he's like, pink? Give me a shape. Yes, yeah, so I can go to sleep now. Paul looks amused and taken aback. The following day, the two are painting the same breakfast scene and it's pretty obvious that Paul's got talent and Hancock doesn't. Mm-hmm. After a montage of the lad's painting, Hancock is out entertaining everyone in the bar with his anecdotes. He then goes to the apartment of the attractive woman, Yvette, who lives next door, who passionately kisses him and then invites him into the house. I mean, Christ. <laughs> if the last bit was Unbelievable. <laughs> truly unbelievable 100% he leaves with the groceries paul is amazed at the childlike quality of hancock's art that's because children see the truth and then um, we have my favorite character in the film and uh yeah an actress i am a fan of nanette newman playing this girl jose an existentialist yeah i love her
0: she's one of the best things about this film and uh yes i am a fan of her as well particularly um Stepford Wives which is chilling yeah watch I I tell you what what makes a good kind of double bill watch Stepford Wives and then watch Get Out and actually Jordan Um, Peele has said that Stepford Wives was a big inspiration for him and the two things are really closely related and she she is brilliant in it
1: yeah I don't think I've i don't think I've do not think seen it, to be fair, so that'll be... Don't watch it before going to bed. It is genuinely oh. quite scary. Is it? Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I will give, give it a go. But, yeah, she was in a really good Richard Attenborough one from the mid-60s called Seance in a Wet Afternoon about Richard Attenborough and his wife kidnap Nanette Newman's daughter, and that's, that's quite a good, creepy kind of thriller. And then she was in a Peter Siles one, I think we mentioned, The Wrong Arm of the Law. Mm-hmm. But yeah, she yeah she's great, Nanette Newman, and um, the on box, which, which we talked about as well.
0: I, I like I like when she comes in. He says, "Has she just got back from Ascot?" And it yeah. kind of it, t- it took me a while to <laughs> to unravel what the hell he was talking about. But actually, yeah, that's that's a good joke and quite a sophisticated joke for uh, yeah, nineteen sixty one.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because she's dressed in black with this pale face and blue painted lips and like gingerish sort of hair she looks great she looks great doesn't it she does look great and yeah he's yeah
0: he's
1: basically doing the why the long face joke without doing it it's such a great joke though isn't it that great way of doing it so this is josie nanette newman she's friends with paul and she's been dying to meet hancock after um after hearing about his new approach to art the infantile school isn't it She thinks he's brilliant. (laughs) I love that. Josie is an existentialist and she believes that life is immediate and the future does not exist. Why kill time when you can kill yourself? (laughs) (laughs) The leader of her sect is having a party tonight and uh, he wants Hancock to be there. So Hancock is up for it and hopes it brings fresh inspiration. Turns out Paul has been here for six years and never had an invite. It's taken Hancock six months. They go to a very wealthy-looking house, Josie rings the doorbell, and a little person dressed like Sinbad answers the door. It's a very grand-looking house. And then we meet Dennis Price, who is playing a parody of Salvador Dali with half a moustache. He,
0: he is brilliant. Again, him and Nanette Newman the two best things about this film. This, this entire scene that we're about to talk about, I think, is the best scene of, of the whole film. Um, yeah, yeah, and I love that he introduces himself as Jim Smith because he loves uh, he loves boring English names. He finds them mysterious.
1: Yeah, exactly. And all I could think of was the former Derby County manager Jim yeah. Smith as well. Yeah, <laughs> I was I was thinking that, and then also, but
0: again, like this, this is so ahead of its time. Like those are like these are Nathan barley style jokes. Yeah, you know, I'd, I'd love how mysterious a boring. <laughs> So yeah. boring english neighbors
1: that's what i wrote yeah because he says he thinks an english name sounds so mysterious
0: <laughs> but it's always like the, the art community has always been good fodder for uh, for jokes and yeah these uniform existentialists are uh, are very funny
1: I love that. Yeah. yeah. And um, Dennis Price of Salvador, Jim Smith has been asleep on the bookcase because he's trying to write a book and things like that. And then a a, a cow tries to get into the main room and Jim finds the cow very intellectually stimulating. And Hancock says he prefers dairy shorthorn for conversation. (laughs) And it turns out that it's not allowed in there, gets sent back to the bedroom, which opens up all sorts of questions. (laughs) (laughs) more people enter the room and the party begins and hancock is sat surrounded by a group of young existentialist men and women all dressed in black with black hair he tells them they had to get out of london because it was just full of people with no imagination they all looked alike and all dressed alike it was like a uniform and they all agree how soul destroying it must be and and that obviously is a we've talked about the the
0: poetry society being the inspiration for this Mm this film and obviously that's that's a direct lift because there, there's a an exact joke in that in that episode of hancock's half hour about um wanting to look different but they all look the same
1: yeah exactly the yeah poets. that's it yeah because you have all the description of of the clothes don't you that, that mm. they all wear and they're all dressed very similarly yeah exactly yeah that's yeah great that's a great episode is that and you can see Those sort of origins, how they picked that. And it, yeah, Mm -hmm. it's such, like you say, such good good fodder, the whole art world. So he helps a poet finish his poem with a line about washing his feet in a glass of beer. And a woman with green hair declares him a genius. Paul says that no one has ever listened to him like that because his ideas are dull. Josie thinks that Paul's jealous. He denies this. It's admiration, though it makes him want to give everything up. Paul leaves dejected and tells Josie that Hancock can walk her home. The party's now over. Jim Smith has gone to sleep in the fish tank. That's my, big, my biggest laugh so far. I thought it was brilliant. Yeah. Was that. Yeah, Hancock is woken up after falling asleep on top of the wardrobe. He puts on a rain hat and attends to the cow that's now in there. He puts on his wellies, throws down a canvas, splashes paint everywhere, then slides around on the paint in his wellies. This is an action painting, so it's basically he's doing a Jackson Pollock, essentially. He then gets on a bike and rides rides around across the canvas, and Hancock inspects his work. Well, that's worth 2,000 quid of anybody's money, that is. Paul returns home pissed off and packs his suitcase. He's going home to England, and he's giving up painting. No one is interested, and his work has nothing to say. Hancock tells him not to give up because he's quite good. He gives Hancock all his paintings and leaves. He's going to stay with Mrs. Cravat, of all people, which is Irene Handel's character, which I do like how she's like a constant kind of something to refer to.
0: Yeah, I've put this point that uh, Paul Massey is a proto-Harry Styles in
1: how he looks. He is, yeah, just seen that now you've said it. Hancock regrets not spending more time with him. Not everyone is a great talent like me. Hancock inspects Paul's paintings to see where he went wrong. It's just not there, is it? A Rolls-Royce pulls up outside an art gallery. The passenger gets out and enters the building. It's Sir Charles Brewer, played by George Sanders, an art critic, and he's buying a painting for one million francs.
0: For our second build actor,
1: he's turned up an
0: hour and one minute into an hour and 45-minute film yeah it's it's a strange one isn't it i've been i at this point like aside from the the dennis price scene and
1: uh,
0: a few bits at the beginning i've been waiting for george sanders to turn up yeah yeah i'm just glad he finally has at this point
1: yeah especially with you being a fan it must have been one of those things i'm like well when is he gonna show yeah exactly what's
0: the why is his name second builds when paul massey said but then paul massey disappears for ages now
1: doesn't he so i i thought the same to be fair So he inquires about an artist called Anthony Hancock. Has the dealer seen any of his work? He's not, but he's heard he's very good. Sir Charles is going to look into this Hancock character. Sir Charles finds Hancock's abode. He tells him he's always looking for interesting new artists and his name was brought to his attention. If he likes his paintings, he'll have nothing to worry about. Sir Charles remarks at how beautiful Paul's painting of Josie is and Hancock thinks he's talking about his picture of birds flying past the Eiffel Tower. (laughs) So Charles tells him that this is exceptional. Of course, I have made a speciality of painting birds. Hancock realises he's not talking about his painting after all, which I, I like that line. There's, there's, a, there's a funny joke um, where he offers him
0: a cigarette and george sanders says oh yes and then and he says the the papers and the tobacco are over there oh yeah completely turns his nose (laughs) that was such a such a thing for a long time about like people people who rolled their own fags are either you know like students or yeah boho artists or or poor
1: people basically yeah the the idea that george sanders would just look down his nose at that yeah Mm -hmm. that's a funny joke yeah it's a funny bit is that yeah exactly Hancock tries to say that they aren't his. Sir Charles responds that, of course they're not. They belong to the world. Hancock shows him his paintings and Sir Charles calls them rubbish. Hancock tries to defend them and Sir Charles says he admires his loyalty to the idiot who painted those atrocities. (laughs) The man who painted those hideous daubs has no talent for art whatsoever. He might as well give it up and get a job in an office. Sir Charles offers him £1,000 as an advance against his first sales. Well, you can't fight fate, can you? Says Hancock, exasperated. Sir Charles leaves and Hancock guiltily tells the cow that he'll make sure that Paul is all right. It's just his work is ahead of his time. He'll sell Paul's to start off with and then start sliding in his own work. So we're now in our exhibition of Paul's paintings. Hancock is now dressed in this sort of kind of well-to-do look. Well, yeah, he's yeah, he's, he's just a bit like a dandy, isn't he? But what I love is that he,
0: that's a, a quick kind of visual joke, uh, almost like a jump cut joke that he's, as soon as he's been offered the advance, no sooner has that money been offered that he's immediately spent it.
1: <laughs> yeah, on the... Yeah, on, on completely ditching the look that that he, he was, you know, committed yeah. to to like, in, that instantly sell out and become because he's now got a cigarette holder, you know, like the kind of famous Audrey Hepburn one. And, yeah, um, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So it sold out in an instant, and then so, I guess
0: that's that's a follow on from the joke about rolling fags as well. You know, it's all yeah,
1: they have yeah. piled it on a bit there. It's yeah, great. they've led it up. It's yeah, brilliant. So so Charles asks him if he wants to meet Dubois. And then it says, bring him here. The exhibition is going well, but Hancock isn't happy. He's seen better lighting on the escalator at Piccadilly tube station. <laughs> he mingles among the crowd, and then he turns one of his paintings over to reveal one of his own paintings. Sir Charles tells him off, and they go to meet the gentlemen of the press. The newspapers declare Hancock is an artist supreme. He arrives at dinner with Sir Charles, and he's now dressed in a cape, and he's two hours late, and he orders egg and chips. The waiter offers him snails. Okay, snails, egg, and chips. The exhibition has been a success, and now it's time to sell some paintings. They go to Monte Carlo to meet a shipping millionaire, so Mr. Carassus.
0: Again, like so, these Monte Carlo shots are great. Monte Carlo looks exactly the same now as it did in 1961.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, uh, Mr. Carassus, a shipping millionaire, wants to buy his paintings, and that's another thing they'll be needing Hancock to make more soon. Uh, They're going to need more paintings for when they go to London. Hancock talks about retiring, but Sir Charles says that retirement isn't an option. So now on a cruise in Monte Carlo, Hancock is having dinner, entertaining a group of well-dressed people. He's telling them about his romantic period and the women he's painted and fallen for. He's getting the come-on from some guy's wife, which is Mr. Carassus's wife, Margot.
0: Which I initially assumed must be his daughter, um, and then silly me i know i'm of course this woman who's 20 years younger than him is meant to be his wife
1: you've seen it through 2023 eyes rob this is 1961 oh well, yeah of course
0: but but then also I, I wonder if that or am i giving them too much credit here i wonder if if that was a comment on what this type you know this is a a rich magnate and he's mm. got a really young wife
1: it could have been, to be fair. Yeah. I hope no,
0: that's what they were doing anyway.
1: Let's let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. And that's what Galton and Simpson were going for because yeah. they seem quite astute people with the mm-hmm. writing. So let's, yeah, let's give them that. Mr. Carrasso subtly threatens Hancock with a knife and apple before offering a chance for his wife to model for Hancock. Hancock is now dancing with Margot on the deck of the ship, but he's worried about the woman's husband. She tells him how much it excites her and how good it is to have a young man in her arms. Young? I know,
0: yeah, no, I. I in capital letters. What the fuck do you mean, young man? <laughs> I mean, he is, in, in that film, he's younger than I am now. We're younger than we are now, but I'd like to think we both look considerably younger than he did at that point, <laughs> I would hope.
1: <laughs> We definitely do. I'm going to take that and say we do. <laughs> Hancock, yeah, and the woman danced to the cha-cha-cha as her husband watched on. And Mr. Carrasus has agreed to buy a selection of Hancock's paintings. Included in the commission is to have a portrait of his wife done. Hancock tries to make excuses for why he can't do it. I have run out of paint. All my brushes are worn down. I haven't got any turps. Margot thinks that Hancock doesn't want to paint her, so instead she wants a sculpture, which I put is a nice callback. Mm-hmm. Below deck, Hancock is preparing to start his sculpture as Margot undresses and appears in his blue dress. She tells him she wants to get it over with as quickly as possible. Then they'll have time for something else. Wink. Mm. Hancock hurts his finger. Margot comes to his aid, but he sends her back to the plinth she's bottling on. We cut to him trying to eat his meal with his fingers wrapped in bandages, which is a kind of funny little bit. The yeah. woman, uh, Margot, puts his napkin over his shirt collar and sits on his knee and starts to feed him. While yeah, that's husband, weird. That, uh,
0: I don't like that. That's weird.
1: Yeah, that's a bit of a strange bit, um, especially with like, her husband watching on, looking <sighs> like bemused. So now we're back below deck and Hancock wants less leg and more toga from Margot. And she's like, but my legs are my best feature. Yeah, so he's better on folds, he says, which (laughs) I thought was a good line. The boat is dressed up for a celebration where the sculpture will be unveiled to everyone. Sir Charles has done a deal with Mr. Correus to buy all of Hancock's paintings. They think that they can show the new ones when they get to London. Surely they should show their fellow countrymen the old ones first, argues Hancock. All the new paintings are locked up in a crate in Paris, but Sir Charles has had them packed up and sent to London. At the fancy dress party that night, Hancock is in his room dressed as a bird. Margot appears dressed as a cat, and she wants him to take her to London. She tells him that she loves him, and Hancock tells her, no, if they can't be together, then they can kill themselves, she offers. And she asks if there's anyone else, and he says, yes, there's a woman I'm promised to in London, Mrs. Cravat. But he says to her, you're someone else's wife, and I'm British. I thought that was a
0: brilliant line. Yeah. (laughs) I also love, before he leaves as well for London, George Sanders' cravat is wonderful. Great cravat on show there. Few men can get away with a cravat. He's one of them.
1: Margot cries and says if she can't have him, then no one will. She pulls out a gun. Two bullets, one for you and one for me. Well, you can have mine as well, he responds. She tries to shoot him and misses, and he runs away, and lots are in the room. He bumps into Mr. Correus, who tells him it's time to unveil the sculpture of his beautiful wife, Margot. The reveal shows that Hancock has remade his Aphrodite at the Watering Hall sculpture. <laughs> Again, we have some funny close-ups of uh, people in masks with, like, tense music, which I thought was a really nice touch as it's, yeah. like, the music swells. The sailors on board start laughing at it. Cool, blimey, the shout. Everyone laughs. Mr. Correus is upset with the sculpture. Margot appears and accuses Hancock of assaulting her. The sculpture breaks through the floor, creating a diversion for Hancock to escape on a speedboat. A newspaper headline reads, Famous artist flies in with a picture of Hancock dressed as a bird, like getting off a plane looking kind of uh, like a bit like he's been doorstepped by the paparazzi, which I liked. Mrs. Cravat is reading the newspaper to Paul, who is now dressed in a suit. There's a there's, there's a, a there's
0: a scene at the airport with a man who's been completely ADR'd as well. Have you did you notice that? Oh no, that's I very, didn't notice that. That's very early sixties. Those early Bond films, like numerous main characters, were had their voices completely redubbed.
1: Mrs. Cravat tells Paul how much she liked Hancock and always encouraged his work. There's a knock at the door. And it's Hancock. They're both really pleased to see him. Mrs Cravat goes off to make a cup of tea. And Hancock asks Paul if he's done any more paintings since getting to London. Only about 12. That's perfect, but I need to get them down to the Crichton Gallery on Bond Street immediately. Mrs Cravat appears with the tea all dolled up in a dress, pearls and heels. At the gallery, Hancock's actual paintings have been hung up and the gallery owner is not happy with the standard of the paintings. Hancock tells Paul to put his paintings up and then tells Sir Charles the new paintings are going up now. The exhibition is open, but Paul has ditched his style. The nudes in the windows are gone. Instead, he's experimenting with uh, Hancock's approach to art, Paul says he knows he's not as good as Hancock, but he is getting better. Hancock sees Sir Charles coming over and is worried. Sir Charles is over the moon. He calls him a genius, a complete change of style, and they're all superb. Hancock doesn't get how these paintings are any better than his. He reveals that the stuff that Sir Charles calls rubbish are his and that these are Paul's. Sir Charles says the difference between Paul's and Hancock's paintings is that Paul has something to say. Hancock tells him that he doesn't know what he's talking about. Hancock quits, telling him that he knows what he was cut out to do and he should have done it a long time ago. He tells them that they're all raving mad and they don't know what they're looking at. And once he's dead, he'll be proved right. Back at Mrs. Cravat's, Hancock is sculpting again. Aphrodite at the watering hole coming up for the third time. Although we've got Mrs. Cravat modelling. He tells her he wants to see the primitive desires inherent in womanhood since time began. Oh, you want a bit of leg, do you? She says, as she kind of pulls it back, uh, revealing her bloomers. No, he does not. The end.
0: I have to say, uh, Paul takes it all in very good humour, doesn't he? That um, (laughs) that Hancock's been ripping him off and spending all his money. That's it, ruined his life, and... I suppose he's 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 got a career to look forward to, so you know all's all's well that ends well.
1: Yeah, exactly. What did you think to this film, Rob? As with most of our
0: spin-offs or all of them so far, although yeah, we kind of, from my point of view, people just do nothing was on the level. I would say Mm. this is nowhere near nowhere near as good as anything he's done on TV or particularly radio. Yes. It's but it, but it's one of the films where they've they've done quite well to get the character out of the the usual um, the usual location and they've they've used the locations really well and they've mm. used the sets really well and it's got really good production design but all the best stuff about the film is not how funny it is if that makes mm. sense I haven't I haven't phrased that particularly well but like like the better there are funny bits but not enough of them. It's definitely too long. Yeah. An hour and 45. Mm. Um, I think Paul Massey's great. I think George Sanders is good, if not a little bit kind of calling it in because he's not too much to do other than just be the kind of posh straight man for Hancock to bounce off. Um, I actually think I probably enjoyed it more than I thought I would, but... It's not a classic by any means.
1: No, I think the the issues with it are that I think he, he, the problem when everyone agrees that Hancock is a genius, it's you're kind of taking away the thing that makes the show great is that he's got someone to, like we said before, to kind of prick the pomposity and there's something mm-hmm. for sort of like him to battle against. And when you don't have that, you've just got him sort of being high and mighty for a bit. And no one knocking him down a peck or two, which is always the the fun of the TV show. And my favourite bits, other than the the Net Newman bit, which is my favourite bit of the film, is like the Liz Fraser bit and the John Missouri bit. All the kind of bits at the start where they're setting him up as this person, and he's kind of causing havoc by not wanting froth on his on his coffee and whatnot. I mean, I know you were saying earlier that you weren't a big Sir James fan, and I was thinking about when we did Michael Rimmer and we were saying it was good that Dudley Moore wasn't in it as a sympathetic character. I kind of feel that you need like needed like a Sid James character to knock Hancock down a peg or two for me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think you're, you're probably right there. And actually, I mean, I, I, I like Sid James, but I think I, I maybe just find, I don't know. I almost find his character in, in Hancock too straight because mm-hmm. I, I love the over the top, nonsense of carry on at the kyber so yeah Yeah. i don't know no i think you're probably right i think sid james this film would have benefited from from him Mm. definitely would have benefited from um kenneth uh kenneth williams but then you know (laughs) which film wouldn't (laughs) yeah (laughs) no true you're right though Um, yeah it was brilliant so but yeah well 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 directed definitely Mm. and um and like I say, I, I really, really like the production design. And it's... Looks great. It, it's something, yeah. And as you say, it had a very big budget for its time yeah. and for the, um, you know, for the kind of film it was. So it's good to see that that budget was getting used in all the right places, you know, with the production design, with the location shots, with getting somebody of the clout like George Sanders to be in it.
1: Yeah, 100%. And I think I think Tony Hancock is good in the film. I know we're kind of critical on some of the aspects, but that's more, I think maybe some more of the writing and maybe things that we're sort of used to within that character. But I think he's good in it. I think he carries the film well, you know, yep. doing his first movie, I think, well, other than The Odds Are Odds, his first big kind of major motion picture. I think that works. And like you said, the direction's good. I think there's just, yeah, it's it's probably not, not all of some of its parts, maybe. Like I do have a soft spot for kind of films of this year, as I you probably talked about in most episodes of my sort of love of early Peter Sellers films. So mm-hmm. there is something that I do like about these films, but I can see its flaws and certainly the the problems with this this film. I mean it had flaws in terms
0: of I think they had high hopes for this going to America and it didn't happen. Well you, you heard right at the top of the show the reviews from like the big American critics, Buzzley Crow, they absolutely hating it. Uh Hancock never really cut it in America and the film was, as we said, renamed Call Me Genius for the US release, despite there being a US a hit US TV show with the same name. Like why would you 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 would think that you'd have some kind of uh research in place to make sure that didn't happen. And that, that's yeah. got to be a fault of the producers and the distributors. Mm. Um, and then things never really got better for Hancock, as we're going to hear more of when we do The Punch and Judy man. So I don't want to eat too much into that in terms of this film's legacy. But his career definitely deteriorated pretty much from this film onwards. Mm. Um, in 2002, though, um, in a poll of BBC Radio listeners, Tony Hancock was voted favourite British comedian. Goulton and Simpson said of that poll that characters such as Alan Partridge, David Brent couldn't exist without Hancock and that they all share the same self-delusion. So as we've already touched on, this was all born with him and with that character. Uh, There's a statue of Tony Hancock in old square in Birmingham. uh, And he's, he's been played by various different actors in, um, in uh, TV dramas Uh, since his death. He was played by Alfred Molina in 1991 for the tv film hancock I'd, I'd quite like to see all of these i'm about to this actually by mm. martin treneman in 2006 drama fantabulosa which i i've never seen
1: the kenneth no.
0: williams um drama with michael sheen
1: mm. so martin it was Tren- when it came out sorry I just
0: yeah it was, I, yeah it wasn't it. i really i yeah i need to i need to try and find that and watch that soon mm. And then he's played by Ken Stott in Hancock and Joan as part of BBC's Curse of Comedy season. Uh, and this film was about his affair with Joan uh, who is played by Maxine Peake. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'd quite like to see all three of those. I mean, Alf- Alfred yeah. Molina. I think Alfred Molina is a really good choice for for Hancock. I mean, he, uh, he's great in so many things as well. Yeah, 100%. uh The Noughties... Band The Libertines, remember them? Pete Doxey? Yeah. <laughs> uh, they named their first album Up the Bracket after the Hancock catchphrase because they were both big uh, Hancock fans. Um, Dalton and Simpson went on to create, obviously, another of Britain's favourite sitcoms. And now their names are synonymous with British comedy. Looking forward to doing Steptoe and Son. Well, we're going to get to that in the next series, aren't we? So that's that's going to yeah. be fun. Um, they've had a much happier legacy and lived a lot, lived a lot longer. Mm. Um, what we can garner from that you, you know i don't know but they both live like, like well into their 80s didn't they or even mm. 90s hancock is widely remembered for his tv and radio work but not really his films mm. i had i don't think when we started compiling this list i don't think i'd heard of any of these hancock films which is surprising really like when you think of like people like peter sellers or peter cook even and they, you know i'd heard of those Mm. a lot of those films that we were putting down yeah that's true uh and then yeah they're not well or fondly remembered films so does this prove the hypothesis of the podcast is this the ultimate proof that the first one that did it and the first one that fell well it didn't fail box office wise but it got bad reviews and it's not fondly remembered so is is you know is this where it all starts yeah I think we've already said that Hancock is where British comedy first starts mm. and then did he also in the long list of things that he that he started is uh to uh, movie transfers of, of TV comedies being shit the first one
1: well yeah and if you think it's like him going abroad which would be used as a as a trope going forward as well particularly like the 1970s with I think on the buses and set tones sun go abroad and and things like that so again I mean, it wasn't him going on holidays, going off to become an artist or whatever, but it is that taking someone out of the mm. familiar surroundings and fish out of water kind of story, isn't it? I mean, what do, what are your
0: thoughts on I think you enjoyed it more than I did probably. You, yeah. You've, you've a general, as you said, more fondness for that era of British comedy films.
1: Mm. Yeah, it, it kind of doesn't. I don't think it comes up to the, the some of the other ones I enjoy that particular, obviously, like I say, the Peter Sellers one seemed to be a bit of a cut above. But I I enjoyed it, and I thought it was. I thought it was nice to see, and liked how it looked. And I always like seeing films of that era because it feels such a a bygone age that it's sort of never going to come back. It's always nice mm. to see it. I just yeah, it's it, it's an interesting one because, like you said, Rob, there wasn't. There's not loads of laughs, is there? is there in it and there's some really good bits but there's nothing not saying there's nothing that isn't laugh out loud funny because we we talked about them during the the making of there's just not a lot of substantial moments and i, I guess in sorry i just want to say i guess yeah. the interesting bit is nanette newman's my favorite character or person in the film i think she's brilliant in very kind of small scenes so it's not even hancock who's the person i'm sort of signaling signaling out i think the um like you say not many laughs and you know again this
0: is, this is something we mentioned actually about the in between wasn't it That the rate it doesn't have the same like it's relentless hancock's half hour into is joke after joke after joke or or kind of it, or there'll be lots of funny monologues where you know it, it's just rapid fire mm. and an issue obviously that lends itself well with a 29 minute show where you've got to cram in as much as you can and it is that is that just a general problem with swapping the format? As going all the way back to Mike Bassett, as Steve Dunn mentioned, it's such a difficult thing to fill that amount of time at the same level.
1: Yeah, well, I remember when we did the in between. As you talked about how we'd in an episode we were ten minutes in and we were still we hadn't even got to the setup of the movie. We were still establishing who the characters were you know and it it just shows that that you are dealing with a different format that you haven't got that like you said the rapid fire and also you haven't got the the kind of takedown you've got to develop the characters a bit more whereas in Hancock like the the poet society that we both listen to it's such a good episode and you have these things where you know Hancock constantly is trying to build himself up and they instantly gets knocked down which is something you don't get in the film
0: yeah definitely so i guess we where where is this now going to feature so this is our last episode of the regular series there's there mm. will be well, well we'll talk about this in a minute one more episode to come uh so we have nine films yes for me this doesn't get near the the top bracket I mean certainly doesn't doesn't touch michael rimmer but it doesn't get near that chunk of what is it now four films that I all kind of find Yes, the same. And then, for me, the question is: Where does it come? Does it come before or after Man About the House? Basically, is is where I'm thinking. I don't, Am I being?
1: Kind of, would would you push it up? Further? I would push. It, I would push it up above Staggered for me because for me yeah. it was a better film than Staggered. But I put it below Mike Bassett, but above Staggered. I don't know how you.
0: Uh, yeah, actually, yeah, maybe I would have it above. i stag- yeah, because it's definitely a better, it's certainly a better made film than Staggard. um, mm. but it's nowhere near as funny as Mike Bassett. No. Uh, but it is funnier than Staggered and it is funnier than Man About the House. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would, I would really, I'd, I'd liken it quite a lot to Man About the House in terms of, like, the the diminishing return from from small screen to to big certainly but it is yeah it's funnier and, and more interesting storyline and, and better written
1: yeah 100 percent agree and it's it, yeah it doesn't touch that run of other films that we talked about mike bassett the parole officer in between as people just do nothing mm. it's not up there it's just a league below i think so, The
0: Rebel, let's put it in sixth place then. Above Staggered, but below Mike Bassett, England manager. And that's our list of ten. Wow.
1: What a first series. I've enjoyed that. It's been
0: good. It has been great. Um, but there's still more to come for this first series because uh, Christmas is coming. But before that, let's uh, let's do our last quiz of the regular series.
1: Yeah, let's do it. So, I've got questions for you on Paul Massey.
0: And I have questions for you on the director, Robert Day. And I'm currently leading 2019. You beat me last week, but I'm still ahead by one. So I would suggest you need to win this one, Guy.
1: It's big time. It's crunch time now. Paul Massey was born in which province of Canada? Uh,
0: I know he died in Nova Scotia. I think, was he born in British Columbia? Ontario. Ontario. Uh, In what year was Robert Day
1: born? Uh, 1922. Correct. What? That was a guess. Great guess. Paul Massey quit acting to teach what subject at the University of South Florida? Uh, Theatre, right? Yes. Yeah. That's
0: right. Yeah. So one to you. Day has two acting credits on IMDb. 1963's Grip of the Strangler and which Peter Sellers comedy movie
1: from 1960? two-way stretch correct yes two out of two there guy for which film did massey win a bafta for most promising newcomer in 1958
0: oh god i already said i couldn't remember this didn't i
1: mm. uh, don't know. hang on no orders to kill orders to kill robert day directed
0: four different tarzan films but how many different actors played tarzan in
1: those four movies well, this is going to be a guess I'm going to go with three that is wrong it was yeah. two was the correct oh. answer there. Yeah. Paul Massey appeared in a 1965 episode of The Avengers what was it called?
0: again I know all of this stuff got oh, no you're going to have to tell me The Gravediggers so still 2-1 to you how many times was Robert Day married? twice correct 3-1 yes. to you
1: what was mass's last screen credit <sighs> don't know tales from the crypt no he played a minister in a show called savannah which i would not heard of but
0: yeah again i would have i would have read all of this and my memory now is just terrible right so this is for you to go four one up guy which should be massive day's tv movie marion rose white saw the first appearance of bart simpson herself nancy cartwright on television but in which year?
1: I'm going to just go with the first thing that came in my head. 1986. 1982.
0: Oh. Now, for, for the eagle-eared amongst our listeners, there's there's a reason I picked that as my last question, because I was frantically scrabbling, trying to find something to connect to my other four, because after writing three questions, I noticed a pattern. The answers <laughs> were, 1922. <laughs> two-way stretch. <laughs> Two Tarzans, two marriages, 1982. Amazing. 3-1 <laughs> to you, Guy, which makes really? it 22-21 to you, This first time oh. you've led, and it's episode 10. Oh, my God. Yeah. amazing. I'll take so, that. congratulations, but there is one more episode, and I'm going to definitely reread whatever the
1: subject is. So, should we tell our listeners what our Christmas special is going to be, or do you want to leave Yes.
0: Yeah. No, episode. So, there's one more episode of this series, which is a Christmas special,
1: and it is... Love Actually, 2003's Love Actually.
0: And we have a special guest, don't we, Guy?
1: Yeah, we've got actor Monica Sagar, who will be joining us to dissect all things Love Actually and Richard Curtis. So, yeah, how will we feel? Did you watch Love Actually originally when it came out? Yes, I have
0: seen Love actually, I think three or four times, and it is a film I absolutely fucking hate <laughs> <laughs> and I think you do too and yeah. i don't know I don't know about Monica, so it'll be interesting to to know Monica's yeah. thoughts.
1: I've texted Monica, I don't think she's a fan, but I think she's interested to see to see how she's gonna feel about it from what my no, message.
0: You know, of course, this this is no it's no direct transfer, but it is obviously Richard Curtis starting in uh, TV sitcoms, and we're going to look at the also the Vicar of Dibley Christmas special as well, aren't we?
1: Yeah, we're going to look at the one from the late 90s, and it's got quite a few kind of British comedy stars. You know, Emma Thompson mm-hmm. started out in comedy. You've got Martin Freeman just off the back of the office, Chris Marshall from My Family, loads of people. Andrew Lincoln from Teachers. I know it's not a sitcom, but it was sort of comedy drama, Mm -hmm. wasn't it? So plenty of people in there. And Richard Curtis came up through Blackadder, Vicar of Dibley, amongst many other things. So it feels right for us to do at Christmas.
0: But looking forward to it. And that will be our last episode of Series 1. So um, please tune in for that one. And I know there will be a lot of Love Actually fans screaming into their podcast device.
1: Exactly. So uh, let's get a debate going. Thanks, Rob, for joining us on The Rebel. Thanks, guys. See you for Love Actually. See you for Love Actually. Bye. Thank you for listening to Britcom Goes to the Movies with Guy Walker and Rob Heath. Thanks to Mark Phillips for the podcast artwork. You can get in touch with us by emailing BritcomGoes at gmail.com or you can find us on Instagram and Twitter as at BritcomGoes. And don't forget to check out the Britcom Goes to the Movies playlist on Spotify and Amazon Music. Please like, subscribe and review so that others can find the podcast and we'll see you on the next episode.